Hey everyone, I'm April and you're listening to The Labster Podcast. I'm proud to say that at Labster, we are guided by our mission to empower the next generation of scientists to change the world and contribute to solving global challenges. If you're an educator listening to this podcast, we know you also share that mission, so thank you. With me, as always, is my friend and fellow Labsterite, S.J. Bolton, an educational designer and former university lecturer who now develops Labster's virtual lab simulations for students in high school, college, and university. Having a faculty mentor can make a world of difference to a student looking for guidance on how to pursue a career in STEM. In this episode, we'll get to speak with a professor who combines her passion for teaching and mentoring STEM students with an active collaborative research program. Now in the Department of Natural Sciences at Bowie State University, Professor Lucia Santa Cruz was mentored early in her academic career. She now views her current role as a mentor as her opportunity to pay it forward and support the next generation of scientists. We can't wait to get started. So welcome to the podcast, Lucia. Hello, Duol. I'm glad to be here. But your story to me is super interesting. And I'm very curious to learn more about like your story and your journey, especially considering how interesting your career has been. I know that you moved from Duke University to Bowie State University, which is historically a Black university in Maryland. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that transition was for you and why it was so important to you to teach in a HBCU. So, you know, and I, faculty in the United States, in, in the, particularly in these very elite universities, are mostly individuals that are engaged in research, mm-hmm. run big labs, have big grants, take postdocs, graduate students, mm-hmm. uh, undergraduates for rotations, have technicians, but very rarely engage in the day-to-day teaching. Mm. Yeah, I recognize that. A lot of the teaching is done by other individuals. And I'm, I'm not saying that I am diminishing the labor of those instructors in the classroom. They are heroes in many ways. But the individuals that are supposed to be the bastions of science or that are the bastions of science, in, at least in the United States, very rarely are in the classroom. Mm. Students don't see them. And to me, that is actually, you know, what's the point of acquiring all this knowledge, of doing all this research, of figuring out all this incredible you know, facts about life, about space, about, you know, geology, Mm. if you cannot share them or you only Mm. share them in journals that experts understand and experts read. Mm. So fundamentally, I think it's an ethical duty. It's a moral imperative to make science, share it with everybody. And that is not easy. I know this is a paradigm that we see in a a lot of institutions that perhaps the professors that are the leaders in the research groups, the principal investigators, I know certainly in the UK I've experienced this too. Often they aren't involved at the coalface, so to speak, um, with student teaching and and lecturing. 
And, you know, that sometimes it's true too that those people that are excellent minds in the research and the development side of scientific endeavor, they're not always the best communicators. However, within those research groups, there are often those with like a true passion for communication and a true ability to connect with people who sometimes do a better job. <laughs> you are um, absolutely right. And I wonder if you had a perspective on who should maybe be the face of it. Ah, that is a tricky question because it it actually lies in the abilities and inclinations and passions of each individual. And if your passion is to sit with an X-ray diffractometer analyzing how the atoms in a macromolecule are rearranging themselves when they are catalyzing a reaction, then, you know, yet you walk into a a classroom with 60, 18-year-olds who are looking at you wondering, you know, what time will be this over and they're cold or hungry or they had a fight with their girlfriend or boyfriend or simply they don't think, they just are looking at the title of your lecture going, what in the world is that? And you don't engage them, then, you know, Yes, you you do have a very fair point. But I also think that it would be wonderful if as part of everybody, as as a scientist's journey, the aspect of communicating, sharing was more central. And I actually, I think it would go a long way to ameliorating this distrust of science. And we wouldn't be seeing this, this, denial of phenomena that are affecting our whole planet, climate change. We wouldn't have probably all this reticence towards vaccination because people would have more of a, you know, science would be more of an everyday common sense part of their existence and not something just for geniuses, right? Sure. I hear you. So this was an observation that you made when you were at Duke, you said, or when you were starting at the surgery department? And did that experience change? Or did your um, viewpoint or your vantage change when you switched to Bowie State Uni? Well, I always liked teaching. You know, maybe it's because I'm the eldest of six and I was always helping someone with some homework, but it changed. It changed. It made me more humble. It really cemented my convictions that science has to be accessible, not just to my cell bio students or cancer bio students or the surgery residents or the med students. It has to be accessible to everybody. And that, you know, you have to have one, a global understanding of your field. You cannot just be thinking about that specific atom in that specific molecule you have to realize that that atom is part of a molecule that is part of a cell that is part of a tissue and so on. And all of that is interacted and connected. Absolutely. And I suppose that ties into, you know, raising aspiration in what are effectively the next generation of scientists too. Like we don't know where where our next generation of scientists are going to come from um, and who will stick with it when they've graduated too. Did your experiences at all at Bowie State University and how did that impact your thinking when you were trying to kind of empower people to follow a STEM career? Every time you teach a subject, 
you have to uh, make sure that you very clearly establish a connection to real everyday life. Mm. Let me give you a very a very simple example. The nature of water and why water is essential for life. Mm. And the very simple uh, example that I can give it to my students is, you know, when you work out, you get very hot. Mm-hmm. And because your muscles are, you know, moving and you're burn, you're doing all these reactions that dissipate energy, heat, blah blah blah. And if water wasn't the way water is, mm-hmm. we would cook ourselves to death. <laughs> Indeed, this is so funny because two days ago I was sat in a meeting where we were discussing this exact topic for a simulation, and we were like, "It's so important to teach like these fundamental concepts, yeah. <laughs> just so that you have this underpinning realization that you yeah. can link to the phenomena that are around you all the time." Yeah, and or or, or things like, for instance. You know, why do I have lactose intolerance? What is lactose intolerance? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But the concept, the idea, the visualization of what that is has to be delivered in an accessible, really approachable and understandable fashion. Do you feel that that really impacts your students? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my goodness, yes. Particularly <laughs> my students in HBCUs and okay. in an HBCU. So I, so Bowie State University is the oldest historically black college and university in the state of Maryland, which is you know where I where I work and live. And a large proportion of our students are first in their families to attend college. The population of uh, Bowie State students is, I want to say, in the high ninety, in the high eighties, no more than actually, it's in the ninety percent African American, and I primarily work with uh, students that come to uh, the biology program, mm. and they come to the biology program. A lot of them with the a goal of becoming doctors, physicians. Right, okay. Because being a physician is uh, a career path that seems to be so impactful in their communities. Mm. And it's also because of the media and so on, very Mm. glamorous, and people think that all physicians can drive a Lamborghini or, you know, a, a, a Porsche Panamera, which is not, you know, that's not the case. Not in the UK, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and, and not anymore in the United States. Uh, let me tell you that. I, I know the field of medicine, both from the professional aspect and from the personal aspect. Sure. And yes, some physicians can have very, very wonderful salaries, Yes. But not all of them do. So anyhow, but it's been glamorized by TV shows like Grey's Anatomy and so on. And they all portray being a physician as such a wonderful life, right? I wonder also if this, and again, this might be my naivety to kind of the cultural aspects that go along with this story. But again, I'm, I'm very curious to learn. I wonder in those communities, are there the same parental pressures, like, um, you know, a parent wanting 
a positive outcome for their student, you know, pushing them to, you know, raise their aspiration. Also kind of like, oh, you could be a doctor, you know, come on, off you go. (laughs) Do you experience or do you observe kind of a parental pressure? Absolutely. But I I think that's a normal thing for parents. We all want our kids to do well. Yeah, sure. And in particular, when the example, the societal example of doing well is being a lawyer or a doctor, right? Yes, yes. Okay. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. But having said that, I have sadly have students who are um, put in, in a terrible position where their parents are... And I don't want to say smothering, but it is almost smothering. They're individual vocations. And to become a physician or a scientist, not only do you have to have the brains, but you have to have the dedication, the years to invest in it, and the financial support. It is very expensive to go to school from the time you graduate high school until your mid-30s. You know, and then, you know, life creeps up. People get married, people have kids, people want to buy a house and you're still in training, still making very little money. It is difficult. Now, in my experience, when I have encountered students where it's evident that their parents are pressuring them, that's where I put in my motherly mentoring hat. I was going to ask you about your mentor, and it seems like something that's very important to you and your relationships with your students. Yes. And I, I actually, to me, is one of the most satisfying and soul-nourishing aspects of, my, of what I do. And I sit down with them. I have a conversation. You know, I tell them, what do you really, what makes your, your heart tick? What makes your blood boil? What makes you excited about this? And more than once, you know, I, I can recall two or three students. I don't want to say uh, give their names because I didn't ask them whether I could talk about them personally. But I recall one of them, fabulous, fabulous student. I, I and he was just also. It's not 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 only was he great in academics, but as a person, he was wonderful. His parents were gung ho him going to medicine. He would faint at the sight of blood. <laughs> he took my cancer biology class just because he was curious and interested. But when we would yeah. talk about specific aspects of cancer treatment, cancer screening, diagnosis, the poor guy was in the back of the room and his eyes were twirling in his eye socket. And he, this is a guy that is like seven feet tall, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Not your traditional person that you might associate with being squeamish. I hear you. And he was able, you know, we had many conversations after class, during class. I always have granola bars in my office, I, you know, <laughs> or, or cans of tea or juice or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, he said, look, you know, I, this is not what I want. I don't want to go to medical school. And he ended up, and he actually said, I don't even want to go for a PhD. I really want to do something else. And he was, through his own agency, he landed a job in a biotech company that does cytogenetics. And mm-hmm. he is fabulous at it. He, and he's doing so well. 
And I am so happy for him. Absolutely. I'm so happy for your student that they had the time and the space to come to that realization before entering a profession. Do you think it's something that can be effective in every institution? I'm conscious that cohorts can be really large and cohort sizes are increasing all the time and making the time and space for every student to have a mentor might be very difficult. You are absolutely right. And that is a very tricky problem. And I mean, there is no easy answer. I am fortunate that in Bowie State, we have, I would say, you know, I don't mean, I think we have like 600, 700 students in the natural science department. And because of the way we do advising and, you know, we, if the professor is engaged and cares, then you can form a good relationship with the student and watch them grow. And to me personally, there's nothing more satisfying than see the kids that I have had in my introbiology. I haven't taught introbiology for biology majors in, in a couple of years, but watch them grow and then make their own decisions and change their paths as they are learning and experiencing new things. That to me is, it's beautiful because it's, and here, and, and, and so the reason why I'm, I want to circle back, that is part of mentoring. Mentoring is shepherding, but letting the person experience. Give advice, but not impose. Listen and give an opinion, and, but don't be in position, in positive in your advice. And always, always, always tell the truth, but you don't need to be also harsh. I mean, you know, if a mentor comes in and tells the student, you're useless, you know, this is, with these grades, you will never, ever be anything to come in. So you better just think about doing something else. It's true that not everybody has the academics to enter a competitive medical school or graduate school program. But you cannot be destructive in your feedback to a student. First of all, it's rude. And second of all, these are tender souls. These are individuals that are growing. And they need to be guided, not beaten. And the beaten is maybe a very strong word, but they don't need to be. I find, you know, in human relationships, even in in the in situations when you are when you are encountering something very difficult and very it's better to just use kindness and use decency to exert change than using force or some more or some or a more assertive way of doing things so so it, it, to kind of shorten things I try to listen and give my students alternatives, show them things that they haven't thought about, you know, and let them make their their decision. One thing that your discussion was bringing up for me, especially when you were talking about your mentorship and a little bit about the pressures that students face, was the paradigm that we have at the moment with a STEM diversity gap, especially in employment. And 
you know, students sometimes come to university with an idea, like a big idea, like I want to be a doctor um, or I want to be a surgeon. But until they get on campus, they're not necessarily exposed to all of the nuanced, less visible roles and career paths that can be open to them. I know myself, I had an idea of what I wanted to be when I went to university, but it wasn't until I actually got into my degree that I realized all of the other things that I could do. And, you know, those things aren't, aren't always accessible when you're 16 or 17, thinking about what it is you want to do with the rest of your life. And one little bit of data that, that came up when we were thinking about this podcast was a, a stat that was in a study released by the Pew Research Center in spring this year, in 2021, it said that Hispanic workers make up 17% of total employment in the United States, but only 8% of STEM workers. And likewise, Black workers make up 11% of all employed adults in the US, but only 9% of all STEM workers. So that there seems to be this gap still in you know creating access and equity, especially in STEM employment. And I'm wondering, could mentorship and supporting and engaging students with an exploration of what could be rather than, you know, just selling that big idea of doctor, surgeon. <laughs> Is that something that we need to spend more attention with? Do you have ideas on how we can address that? Yeah, well, you are absolutely right. And actually the numbers are worse if you look at the proportion of individuals representing diversity as part of the total population of the uh, United States. This is a topic that is in the forefront of a lot of the big institutions. Um, NSF, the National Science Foundation, is putting a lot of effort and muscle and funds available to support STEM education to address those gaps. I know the National Institutes of Health are also very aware of the lack of diversity in in uh, biomedical professions. And this lack of diversity to me is more troublesome when you start rising in the upper echelons. So if you if you were to look in a hospital, you see that a lot of the technicians in the labs, uh, the support staff in nursing uh, are, di- are individuals that represent diversity. But as you start advancing in the hierarchy, so you start looking at the individuals that attend medical school and then the individuals that attend residency, and then there is the breakdown in the different residencies, there is this gap or the the lack of diversity becomes incredibly, it's just very, very pronounced. And if you look then, in in general, in academic institution, women chairs in biomedical sciences. So in order to address the disparity, the effort has to be concerted and it has to start not, if you're trying to address it at at the faculty level, trying to hire more individuals that represent diversity, it's too late. If you you need to start early, so it has to start almost, I want to say, in the high school level, you know, ensuring that students have the backgrounds that will allow them to 
succeed. And unfortunately, the socioeconomics of this country are such that the individuals that represent diversity some are also less advantaged economically. And if you have, and in this, in, in particular, you know, I'll give you an example. If you want to go to a really good public school, you need to live in a neighborhood that is ascribed to the good public school. And that neighborhood usually has very expensive homes. So it pushes out individuals that don't have that economic power to live in that neighborhood. Mm. Yeah, I hear that. Absolutely. And it's something that we experience here in the UK as well, especially in the the more deprived areas in, in the Northeast where I am compared to relatively higher socioeconomic areas that we see in the South Coast. Lucia, this has been super interesting and I'm really sad because I could talk to you all day and I find your story absolutely fascinating and your ideas so inspiring. Our time's coming to a close already and I really want to thank you for sharing your thoughts, but I wondered, is there any kind of final thoughts or anything you'd like to touch on before we wrap up our episode? Well, um, thank you for asking me. I think this is, you know, if I can... If I can, I mean, if I am talking to educators, educators are already committed. We're all trying. What I would really, really try to ask is that people realize that this, that STEM and the high and in, in biomedical sciences and particularly when it refers to, to diversity is not a bubble. It is connected and it's a consequence of society and where we are and what decisions have been. And it will take all of us to work and to be honest and in order to to really address disparities in a meaningful way. And meaningful is a very loaded word here. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Lucia Santa Cruz. This has been... I think a really inspiring conversation. And I just want to also thank our listeners. We, Lucia, SJ, and I hope our conversation today helped to spark some new ideas about teaching and mentoring students, and also a feeling of empowerment about being able to do something to close the diversity gap in your own way at your own institutions. Of course, we know you'll have your own thoughts, and we invite you to send us your feedback at labster.com slash feedback. And that's all for us today. Talk to you next time.